in the book of John, chapter number 11 this morning, and the title of the message today is Life's Bottom Line Question. Life's Bottom Line Question. If you will open your Bible, John chapter 11, and stand with me, if you will, today as we read God's Word together. John chapter number 11, I'll begin reading in verse 17. Follow with me, please. And then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs or two miles off. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it to thee. Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. And Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now read with me these two verses that are our verse of the month, please. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die, yet she said unto him, Lord, or yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And if you'll look back to verse 26, life's bottom line question, believest thou this, or do you believe this, this teaching that Jesus has made? You may be seated, and thank you for participating. Lazarus had died. Lazarus was probably the Lord Jesus' best friend outside of the 12 apostles. He often went to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in this little community, a suburb of Jerusalem two miles away called Bethany in the Scripture. And on this day, that house is shrouded with black because Lazarus has died suddenly and unexpectedly. Jesus was informed of it. He was away in a different place ministering. He heard of it, and he began his journey, and he came back to Bethany, to this home. When he was some distance away, a mile or two up the road, then Martha hears that he's in the neighborhood, and she goes out to meet him. And it was in that conversation that we have these wonderful words that we have memorized and that I've repeated today. Jesus, in the circumstances of Lazarus' death, and to Martha, his surviving sister, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in that, though you are dead, though you will die physically, yet you will live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die, He's not talking about the body because obviously Lazarus had died, but he's talking about your spirit, your soul. And he says, if you believe this, you will never die. And then life's 
Bottom line, question, what else could be more bottom line? What cuts through all the chase and gets right to the point? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Well, the this that he's referring to is that he is the resurrection. And I believe that it's, it's, it's very hard to say what is the most important Christ, Christian doctrine because the resurrection would mean nothing without the cross. The cross, though, would not mean nearly as much without the resurrection. Neither of them could have occurred were it not for the virgin birth. So the whole Christian fabric, if you will, is tied together. It's like a piece of cloth. You pull a string over here, and over there there's a snag somewhere. And the whole Christian fabric is woven together very, very intricately, we could say. And the resurrection is so vital. There is nothing more important than it. I don't know if you have ever thought about it, but we're gathered here today in this church twice. Great crowds of people have come to worship Jesus Christ on this day. But if you lived in most of the world, if you lived in the world where it is predominantly Hindu, for example, in India, you would find that there's not a special day today. There's not any worship. The gods that they worship have never become personal to begin with. Secondly, they've never died for the sins of the Hindu people. And thirdly, they surely have never resurrected to life. And if you were to go to where the Buddhist faith dominates in the world, the Buddhists worship an impersonal God at best, like the force or like gravity, not a personal being who, loved them, who loves them and died for them. And there's no resurrection there. There's no joy in that religion as we feel today. I was sitting yesterday and it was rainy and gloomy and <clears throat> I was in my study at home I looked out at the very dark uh, world around me. I thought of all the other troubles that are going on in the world. But do you know what? My heart was full of joy because I read that passage as I was studying. Whosoever believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And in the quietness of my study, I affirmed it in my own heart again, and it brought great joy to me. Yes, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for Bill Monroe's sins, and that he was in the grave for three days, and that he resurrected on that third day. And I believe that with my whole being. I'm counting on that. I'm depending on that. If that's not true, I am sunk. But it is true, and there is evidence to support that. The architects... I know from talking to one, I've talked to him about the keystone, and we use that word, the keystone. Uh, something is a keystone. And I thought it was the great, the best way I could find to illustrate my point on the importance of the resurrection. Picture an ark, if you will, there. That could be a doorway or an entranceway through any stone wall. And there you have the stones coming up in this ark, and at the apex or the peak of it, you will find what they call the keystone. Now, the rest of those rocks are square, and they fit together there, but that keystone is wedge-shaped, almost pie-shaped in some cases, and it holds the rest of those pieces together. They would come apart 
if it were not for that keystone. Now, you can imagine above that, rising up maybe even 30, 40, 50 feet in the air, stones and rocks, and they pushed down on that ark with the weight of tons and tons and tons of weight, and yet the ark doesn't give way because the way that it's constructed, the keystone holds them all the pieces in place. And it can sit there for hundreds of years, as we see in some old Roman walls over in uh, Europe and so on. Well, the resurrection is the keystone of the Christian faith. It holds the other pieces together. And as I've already said, if you take out the resurrection, the cross would not mean nearly as much, or the virgin birth wouldn't mean as much. None of the other doctrines would have the significance that they have to us. But the fact that Jesus Christ died and is living today and is the source of our hope and our joy, that is the keystone doctrine. It makes the rest of our Christian faith significant and important to us on this morning. I'd like for you, if you would, to go to the book of 1 Corinthians with me over a few books from where you are in the book of John chapter 11. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is an entire chapter, the longest chapter and the most factual teaching in all of the Bible on the resurrection both the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 14, Paul says, if Christ did not rise from the grave, and then he tells us the implications. Have you ever thought about what if Jesus had not resurrected? What if Christ still lies, his dust somewhere in some far eastern tomb? Well, this shows you why it's the keystone doctrine. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in verse number 14, Paul says, if Christ did not rise from the dead, our faith is vain. Our faith is vain. It's meaningless. If Jesus today did not rise from the dead, what in the world are we doing sitting here today? There's no purpose in us coming and worshiping a dead Christ. It is the resurrection that gives significance to the whole life of the Lord Jesus Christ, in fact. And then look in verse 15. He says, if the dead rise not, then is, uh, is uh, pardon me, I'm reading the wrong verse. Verse 15, he says, and if Christ did not rise from the dead, we are found false witnesses of God. And so today, I'm up here proclaiming something that's falsehood. There's no truth to it. If Jesus, in fact, physically, visibly, materially, did not get up and walk out of that tomb that day. And then in verse 17, he says, we are still in our sins. I just think that I've been saved. Jennifer Edie is living under a delusion. She just thinks her life was changed by the power of Christ. It's all mental. It's all intellectual. If Christ did not rise from the dead. But Paul goes on to say, no, we're not in our sins. We have been forgiven. We do have hope today because Jesus Christ, in fact, walked out of that tomb on that Easter morning. Then if you will look in verse number 18, and he says, our hope is futile. Our hope is absolutely futile in regards to those people who have died. My mother and daddy, over the last years, I've buried both my mother and my dad. And every now and then I go and stand by their, t- by their grave for a few moments. 
And as I stand there, I have this deep confidence and assurance that someday that grave is going to open and mom and daddy are going to be resurrected out of that grave. And I'm going to put my arms around my little mother again. And I'm going to shake my dad's hand and I'm going to see them, not some ghosty, mystical, foggy experience. I'm going to see them in the flesh, in the body, because he lives, we shall live also. And I look over this congregation and I can spot quite a number of people that this year I've walked in front of the casket where you have placed one of your dear loved ones underneath the sod. And you put them there. If Jesus did not rise, if the resurrection is not a truth, you will never see them again. There is nothing out there for us in the future except despair and blackness. But if Jesus Christ, in fact, resurrected from the grave, then we will see them again. Isn't that a great and comforting and powerful doctrine to us this morning? And because he lives, we shall live also. And so our own hope of a resurrection is predicated upon, is based upon, it depends upon the fact that Jesus Christ physically, literally resurrected from the grave, and he is alive evermore today. The importance of the resurrection, it's the keystone that holds all the doctrines of Christianity together and keeps them in place. And number two this morning, Jesus demonstrated that truth in his own life. Again, will you use your Bible with me and go back to the book of Matthew, the last chapter of the gospel of Matthew in your Bible. Matthew chapter 28, and there is the first of four accounts of the resurrection of Christ, written by Matthew, the former tax collector who Christ saved, and he became one of the 12. And in Matthew 28, let's read it. Now, we have the children in here. You know, I was absolutely shocked at what children do. The other night, Judge Ralph Anderson came and spoke to us about the legal implications of the resurre- uh, uh, in the trial of Jesus Christ, how the, all the laws were violated when they tried him. And we brought the children in here that night. And uh, Amy, our children's director, she came up and handed me this sheaf of papers two or three days later. Now, Judge Anderson uses those $50 words, and he was all over the place with legal terminology and so on. And these little children, I thought, I don't know how much they're getting out of this. And she brought me these papers, and these kids had outlined what the judge said. I thought they remembered more of it than I did. And so don't minimize these little, little kids today. They're pretty sharp. Now, kids, I want you to listen because in our world, it could be that you could live a long time and never hear anybody even read an account of the resurrection of Christ. So all the children, how many children are here uh, 12 years old and down? Hold up your hand real high for me this morning. You're not in here usually during our services. Okay, thank you. Now, I want you to look up here. Grandpa Bill's going to read a little story here this morning. And I want you all to listen to it, and I want you to remember it. Let's all look. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. The angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. 
And for fear of him, the keepers, that would be the Roman guards that had been hired to guard the grave so that the disciples wouldn't come and steal his body away. For fear of him, the keepers did shake. And these big burly soldiers became like dead men, frozen by terror. The angel answered and said unto the women that came, Fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. Well, he is not here, for he's risen. As he had said, Come now and see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee, and there you shall see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples word. There is the story of the resurrection, the Easter story, according to Matthew. Now, here's my point. Number one, the importance of the resurrection. It holds together the rest of the Christian fabric, if you will. Number two, Jesus demonstrated the truth of what he claimed. He said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Right here, I've just read to you the story where he demonstrated he really is the resurrection and the life because he arose from the grave. There's a lot of skepticism today about Christianity. We have got uh, pumped into our homes through the medium of television. It seems like every year there's a new story invented, a new book that somebody's discovered or something. And in every case, it has caused us, it, it casts doubt upon the resurrection of the Lord. Well, listen to me. I listen to those things but I know that they're not factual. Most of them are fabricated on some little piece of evidence that was deemed unreliable centuries ago. I don't know why they keep circling around. I don't know why intelligent people are always searching for something there because the resurrection has been pretty strongly demonstrated. You see, you are entitled to your own opinion, but hear me. You're not entitled to your own facts. You can make any determination you want. You can choose anything you want today. You can reject Jesus Christ, or you can be his most devoted follower in South Carolina. But you don't get to pick the facts. The facts are the facts. The facts are what they are. As they say down in Texas, when you meet a fact, you just tip your hat and say, hello, fact, and go on. It is a reality. And you don't get to pick the facts. The facts are what they are. You can make your own choice in what you do with the facts. And here are the facts. Because the foundation of our belief in the resurrection is not based upon some whimsical data or some mythological belief or some old wives' tale. It's based upon some facts. And facts are stubborn things. They don't go out of the way. They don't change. They don't move at our whim. The facts are that Jesus Christ died on a cross. Not even the skeptics deny that there was a historical Jesus and that he, in fact, died on a cross, that he was martyred or murdered, depending on how you look at it. And then he was buried in a nearby tomb that was owned by a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. I've always thought it quite humorous 
I don't know if Jesus, I'm, I'm sure Jesus never met um, Joseph who owned the tomb. But if he, if he had met him, he could have said something like this. Hey, Joseph, I'd like to borrow that tomb for a few days. I don't need it long, about 72 hours. I'll leave it in good shape when I'm going from it. You'll be able to use it again when you need it, but I just need to borrow it for 72 hours. The only person that ever borrowed a tomb was Jesus. You don't find that very funny, do you? I think that's pretty strong. Just borrow a tomb for, for 72 hours, huh? That's what our Lord did. And so he died on the cross, not very far. I've been there. Not very far away is that garden tomb. And so a few hundred yards, they carried his body and put it in that tomb. And then they put some concrete or some mortar or something around it, rolled a big stone up to the door and sealed that tomb. And if you'll read the previous chapter of Matthew where we just read, they, they appointed a Roman guard, depending on the circumstance. A guard was eight soldiers, 12 soldiers, or 16 soldiers. But a guard, big, trained military men, guarded that sealed with concrete mortar tomb. And there's the body lying of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a fact. Guard is posted. Early on Sunday morning, some women went to look, at, or to, to look over the circumstance, and what did they find? They found the tomb was empty. The stone is rolled over to the side. A young man, an angel in white attire, who is glowing, his appearance is obviously supernatural. He's sitting on that stone. He says to them, don't fear. He's not here. He is risen. He's not even here. The tomb is empty. And then over the next 40 days, almost six weeks, the Lord Jesus Christ makes appearance after appearance after appearance to people who are his followers and believers. First, he appeared to those women, and then he appeared to the 12. And then he appeared to a brother named James. The interesting thing about James is James wrote the book of James in your Bible here. That wasn't written by the apostle James. That was written by brother James, a half-brother of Jesus. James was raised with Jesus up there in that little village, Nazareth. And they played together as little boys. I can imagine them playing little games and throwing a ball and swimming in the creek or whatever they did in those days, little boys. And they play together and they grow up. And then Jesus announces, I am the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. And James says, I don't believe you, Jesus. You're my brother. We have ate together, eaten together. We have slept together. We've played together. I've watched you grow up. You're just like me. And Jesus said, no, I'm the Son of God. And James said, I don't believe that. And he didn't believe. And then Jesus resurrected from the grave. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it tells the names of people who Jesus appeared to. And it says, James. Why did he appear to his own brother? To show him, to convince him beyond all doubt that he was the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And this is based upon reliable testimony that we've had that the early church looked at and they agreed to. And there were others. What about the thousands of people who lived in Jerusalem And they had rejected Jesus Christ. They were the ones that cupped their hands and said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, as he he stood there in Pilate's judgment hall. Now, something 
changed the minds of thousands. And they began to trust him one by one and score by score and hundred by hundred. That early church that was founded there in Jerusalem that James ultimately became the pastor of, history says, very reliable church history, Josephus says 50,000 people were converted and became members of that Jerusalem church over the first two or three years after Jesus Christ had gone away to heaven. But remember, that's in a town that was only two or three times the size of the city of Florence. These are people who had seen him, who had heard him teach, maybe had walked by the cross, knew friends of his, knew all about him. Information was passed, just like it is in our city. And yet, in spite of the fact that they had rejected and encouraged his crucifixion, now they're coming to him in hundreds and thousands and trusting in him as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior. Now, that's the facts. Those facts don't change. The skeptics always want to say, well, what if somebody had stolen the body? Maybe the body was stolen. Well, just think about that. Don't just, don't just watch the Da Vinci Code and accept all that malarkey. What if the body had been stolen? Well, among other things, the disciples over the next 20 or 30 years died, every one of them a martyr's death. And what is the point? Had they stolen the body and been in on this conspiracy to hide this body Why would they have died for a lie, a conspiracy? It makes no sense. Now, people will die for a falsehood, true. People have died for a lie. Millions of people have died over the course of history for a lie like Nazism or communism. They bought into that deeply. But here's the point. They thought it was the truth. They didn't know it was a lie. But if these guys helped hide the body, they knew it was a lie, and they died for a lie. People don't do that. Can you think of one thing you would die for that's a lie? Well, you wouldn't. You know that. That's common sense. And so the disciples, they weren't going to die for a story they knew was not true. Somebody else said, well, you know, somebody stole that body and they, no, they didn't steal that body. What are you going to do with a body? Do you know a human body is kind of hard to get rid of? You don't just steal a body and tuck it away somewhere. A million criminals have gone to the gallows because they didn't realize how hard it is to get rid of a human body. They stick around. If you've ever been to Israel, the one thing you will notice is that the ground is very hard and it's rocky. It's stone. It's not like South Carolina. You can take a shovel out and stick it in the ground some places with one hand. It's sandy and clay. But you know what? In, in, in Jerusalem, it's rock. To dig a grave and hide a body with 600 pilgrims from the Passover weekend there? Quite a task. People are everywhere. People are packed in. They're camping out. They're everywhere, wall-to-wall people. It's Passover weekend. What are you going to do with that body? You can't go out and dig a shallow grave in 10 minutes. You've got to explain what happened to the body. And if the disciples had done that, as I said, they wouldn't have died for that. And if the Jewish leaders of the Romans could find that body, all they'd have to do is come and dump it down at the feet of the disciples, and that would have ended Christianity, wouldn't it? But nobody ever found that body. 
because that body wasn't there. That body was divinely and supernaturally resurrected by the power of God. That body was at the right hand of the throne in heaven within minutes after the resurrection, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, there were over 500 eyewitnesses who saw him at one time. That probably was up in Galilee where he taught, and the news got out and said, Jesus is alive. Come hear him. If, if people thought that he was alive, it wouldn't have been hard to get a crowd of 500, I'll tell you that. And they gathered together, and Jesus talked to that crowd. Over 500 brethren, Paul said, of whom the greater part still remain, meaning when Paul wrote those words in 1 Corinthians, some of those people had passed away, but most of them were still living. And so witnesses were going all over the land of Israel, and they were talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah who had come and who had died on the cross, and now who was living. And they had seen him and heard him teach again. Now, how do you explain that? 500 people would be about what's sitting in this front section between this aisle and this aisle back through here. That's 500 people approximately. Center section of this auditorium, whole 500 people. That many people came and sat at one point and heard Jesus Christ. Tell me, has there ever been a trial in the world, in history, in any country, where 500 people were eyewitnesses and 500 testimonies were disallowed? No. It takes one testimony in some circumstances, two, three, four at the most, would convict anybody of any fact. And here are 500 who came that day and saw Jesus Christ. You can't explain that except in one of three ways. One, they all got together and conspired and lied about it. But how would 500 people form a conspiracy? Number two, they, were, they had all been to Colorado and were high on pot. <clears throat> and the third thing is, is they, had, they all had seen the living Christ, and they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you explain the transformation of the apostles? Cringing in fear terrorized, afraid to open their mouth, hiding because they thought if they did that to our master, they're coming for us. And then after the resurrection, the boldness, the courage, and the lack of fear as these men go throughout the world, Thomas all the way to India, and others of them throughout the entire Roman and Mediterranean world, preaching the gospel, preaching it fearlessly, not cutting one bit of slack for anybody, taking it right into the teeth of the unbelieving world. And they did it for years, and they sealed it with their blood. They did it with their whole life. This is evidence that they believed because they had seen with their eyes. And why were the residents of Jerusalem now? Why did they change their minds and begin to believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? And so it's been down through the years. Powerful, factual evidence, not fanciful imagination, not some dream, some mystical experience. No, facts, an empty tomb, appearance after appearance, 500 witnesses, people willing to die for what they had seen. 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In his resurrection, he demonstrated this is life's bottom line question. And lastly, let me tell you why it's the bottom line question. In the book of John, again, it says there, Jesus turned to Martha. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Martha, do you believe this? I want you to see that this is a personal question because I want you to take it personally. I don't want you to sit here and say, that's just a generalized thing for everybody. No, I want to ask you. It's like if you and I could sit in my office and you could sit across the desk and we could look each other in the eye three or four feet apart and I would say to you, do you believe this? That's the way I would like for you to take that question right now. Do you believe this? This is not for father, mother, brother, sister, cousin, uncle, aunt. This is not for my friend. This is you I'm talking to. Do you believe this? Do you really believe this? I ask you that, I, I say that to you because our skeptical world today, as I've already alluded to, is captivated, it seems, Every Easter season, every Christmas season, some new book, some new documentary, some new movie. This year, it's Noah. And all the people who have reviewed that who are Christians say it bears zero resemblance almost to the biblical account. And I don't want you to walk out of here thinking, hey, I saw that movie, I read that book, and I don't know if I believe or not because do you believe? That's life's bottom line question. I want you to believe this. A few years ago, a book came out. It's probably the best known of all the things, type things I'm talking about. The book was called The Da Vinci Code. I bought a copy of it. I read it. I preached on it for four weeks after that because I saw that book so widely advertised, then made into a big movie with big name Hollywood stars. And it, everything about that book sought to create doubt in people's minds about the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a fictional account, and yet it didn't read like fiction. In fact, the preface of the book almost made people think they were reading a true account. And there were people across the world who said, I used to think I was a Christian. I'm not sure I believe that anymore. And so it brought tremendous damage to the cause of Christ and to the faith of many people. The author was a man named Dan Brown. He's a brilliant author, and he is a brilliant man. He's an intellectual. He is high in intelligence, I promise you. And here was the thread of the story, basically. Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He went into this deep unconsciousness from loss of blood. He almost died. During the cover, under the cover of darkness, the disciples pulled him down from the cross and they carried him across the border into Egypt where he would be safe. They nourished him. They gave him these various drugs that were secret type, you know, uh, uh, things that people had stirred up that would work in that kind of situation. And Jesus was nursed back to health. And then Jesus married Mary Magdalene. He was afraid to go back to Jerusalem because of the, the damage that had been done to him previously. And so he married Mary Magdalene, and they lived somewhere in obscurity. He never made another public appearance. And then they had children. And then Jesus got sick and died, or he died from old age. 
And Mary Magdalene went across the border. She went clear up into France and raised her children there so that she could preserve the bloodline of Jesus Christ. Now, this is man's fancy. It's based on Gnostic gospels that were looked at early in history and rejected as being untrue. And yet, Dan Brown brings them up and presents them in a way that would make people question that Jesus Christ ever even died, much less that he resurrected. 1980, there was a Jewish archaeologist named Dr. Shimon Gibson. He discovered a tomb in the Talpiot neighborhood in the south part, the south suburbs of Jerusalem. It was an ancient burial tomb, and it had 10 ossuaries in it. An ossuary is a box about the size of the top of my pulpit. And in those days, they didn't embalm a body, so they would put the body in the tomb, and after about a year or so, the body would be completely gone except the bone structure. They'd pick the bones up, put the bones in the ossuary, and they would bury it in a separate location. And so they did here with this. And so this archaeologist finds 10 of these ossuaries in this tomb, and one of them has on it Yeshua written the name. And so this movie producer from Hollywood, James Cameron, Avatar, and all those things he's famous for, he goes over there to Israel, and he makes a movie called The Tomb of Jesus, and it's on the Discovery Channel, and I saw it. And he tried to make the case that they had discovered, we have discovered the bones of Jesus Christ. Some of you saw that. Shimon Gibson the archaeologist who made the original discovery, and then they came in and began to work with these ossuaries for the movie, Dr. Gibson said all they wanted to do was make money. He discredited them after being in the deal with them. That didn't get as much publicity as the movie did. My point is our faith is on the line today and it's being attacked every time we turn around. But rather than you just automatically believing that stuff, you've got to study. You've got to research. Your faith is worth a little bit of effort, ladies and gentlemen. And in every case, those things get discredited every time. So it's a personal question. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that he died and resurrected for your sins this morning? Number two, and lastly, It's a precise question. Jesus said to Martha, Martha, do you believe this? I'm not asking you today if you believe in Christmas. I'm not asking you today if you believe in the second coming. Those are different subjects. Important, but do you believe this? Because this is the gospel. This is the life-changing power that Jennifer testified to us about a moment ago and that hundreds of other people could stand in testimony to. Do you believe this? This meaning that Christ died for your sins, that he paid the price for your sins, that he resurrected from the grave after three days, literally, physically, visibly, materially, and that he reigns today at the right hand of the throne of God. And that is the good news. There is no good news today if Jesus Christ is in a tomb. The good news is he lives, he lives. I know my Redeemer lives today. And I've given you a little bit of the evidence for that. I hope that you are depending on that, clinging to that, 
holding on to that with all of your might and with all of your hope. I went through some of those apologetics because particularly our young people, as Jen testified, they go away to college and they're faced with the partying lifestyle and skepticism and unbelief and in high school and college and through those formative years, they're just pounded on. They wonder, is that stuff my preacher preaches in the church believes? Do I really believe that? Well, today I've tried to support that and give you a basis, a reason for your faith. Do you believe this? That's the issue. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed.